you're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 313 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Adriana Chang is a developer intern at Shopify. She's a member of the inaugural cohort for Shopify's Dev Degree Program, a four-year work-integrated learning program that combines hands-on dev experience with education at a partnering university. At work, her focus is on improving code-based health and establishing good design patterns. Outside of work, she enjoys practicing Muay Thai, spending time outdoors, and playing her ukulele. Welcome to the show, Adriana. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Adriana, what is your developer origin story? Um, So I got into programming pretty late, actually. Computer science and computers in general weren't really on my radar growing up, but I did have this love for math and for English. I really liked to write and express myself that way. Um, So a little bit later on into high school, my parents, who are actually both in the tech industry, um, encouraged me to give computer science class a try. And I was actually pretty reluctant. Um, I didn't think it sounded very fun. I was picturing a bunch of kids typing like ones and zeros into computers. Um, And so, yeah, I was a bit hesitant, um, but they promised that if I hated it, I could drop it and take a different class. So I decided to give it a try. Um, And to be quite honest, I really didn't like it in the beginning. Um, I was the only girl in the class, and it seems like I was the only one who had never written code before. So I felt pretty out of place, Um, but I really liked the teacher. Um, He had taught me a couple of other classes, and he encouraged me to just stick with it a bit. Um, And what really changed things for me was this program called Technovation. Um, It's this global 12-week program that encourages girls to solve local problems in their community using technology and entrepreneurship. So they were bringing it to Ottawa for the first time. They reached out to all of the schools in the district um, where I was going to school. And they said, you know, if you have a group of girls who might be interested in forming a team and taking part in this, like tell them to consider signing up. So I ended up uh, taking part in it with some other girls in my grade. Um, It was a really exceptional experience for me. It was the first time I got to see female developers, um, you know, talking about things they were excited about and talking about work that um, just, yeah, made them really happy and the problems they were solving that they were really excited to solve. Um, so that was what really changed things for me. It's what made me consider computer science as a career thing. Um, suddenly it wasn't, you know, coding wasn't about writing little programs to solve math problems. It was this tool that I could use to solve, you know, actual problems around me and impacts people around me. So. Um, I decided to uh, pursue computer science after high school. Um, I am originally from Ottawa here in Canada, and so I was applying to a bunch of different Canadian universities. Uh, One of those universities was Carleton, which is 
uh, in Ottawa. And it was actually at the time that Carlton was working together with Shopify to develop a work integrated learning program. So it was going to involve essentially four years of computer science at Carlton, combined with hands-on experience as a developer intern at Shopify. So I had applied to Carlton's CS program already, and they reached out to me and asked if I was interested in applying for this work integrated learning program. It hadn't even uh, really been approved by the board yet. It was still kind of being pulled together, but Shopify had actually been a sponsor of Technovation, and so I was already familiar with them, uh, was pretty excited about getting to work there, so um, no hesitation in applying, and uh, yeah, I ended up being selected to take part in the very first cohort of this program, which has since been branded Dev Degree, um, and that's how I ended up at Shopify. It's been a pretty whirlwind experience since, and I'm actually finishing my degree and my time in the program this April, and I'll be joining them full-time in the summer. That is such an incredible story. It's so inspiring, and it just seems like you've had a lot of opportunities that have come up that you've taken advantage of, and you should be so proud of that. I am curious, so what was a day like for you? Would you be taking university classes during the day, at night, and then working at Shopify? Like, how did you balance everything? Yeah, so the program uh, basically consists of 20 hours at Carleton. Um, that's time dedicated to mostly uh, being in like lectures or being in tutorials. Um, and then it's 20 hours a week of work um, on a team. So the way the program is set up now, there's about eight months to a year of um, training and course content. Uh, so students in the program will essentially be at Shopify uh, just learning about kind of the way Shopify operates and what, um, what a developer does day to day and what the kind of workflow looks like. Um, and then after that period, they get put on a team. Um, and at that point, they're balancing teamwork and schoolwork. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the way the program operates. It's pretty fun uh, to be, yeah, getting to learn in the classroom, but also getting to work on actual problems uh, at a company like Shopify. That's so great. So I'm going to take a guess that your first experience with Ruby on Rails was when you got to Shopify. And if so, what did you think the first time you saw it? Yeah, you guessed correctly. Um, so yeah, I had no experience in Rails prior to joining Shopify. Um, I didn't even really know what Rails was, but I knew that um, Shopify was kind of known for being involved with Rails and for being a company that had adopted Rails since its inception almost. Um, and nowadays Shopify is pretty well known for having this like huge Rails code base that has managed to uh, scale over the last decade or so. Um, but luckily I actually didn't have to dive into the monolith uh, right away when I started. So my first placement at Shopify, and so placement is what we call our kind of little internship slots. Um, so yeah, my first placement was on this team called Inter Internal Tools, and our team was responsible for supporting a lot of smaller internal Rails applications. So this was mostly um, like working on tools to help with context sharing and developer acceleration within the company. So I definitely got to start out working on Rails at like a smaller scale. Um, on things that were kind of closer to your standard vanilla Rails app. So it was a nice little introduction. Um, 
And yeah, with my program, we change teams every eight months. So I've gotten to work on a couple of different Rails teams and seen different ways that different teams have kind of approached building in Rails. Um, interestingly enough, most of the teams I've worked on have worked on services separate from Core. So a lot of my experience with Rails has been um, pretty fun, just uh, building features for teams. And it's actually only um, recently that I've joined a team that works on Shopify Core, which is our big Rails monolith. Um, so it's been a really interesting experience because there are suddenly like all these other things to care about, like how do we scale? How do we make this performant? How do we organize our code so it's not just this huge disastrous code base that everyone's trying to figure out? Um, so yeah, Shopify has had to figure out how to grow beyond the Rails defaults in order to su successfully scale. Um, but I definitely feel like I'm just kind of touching the tip of the iceberg in terms of working with this large Rails application. Well, speaking of, I wanted to bring you onto the podcast to discuss your recent article on the Shopify blog, which was titled, Refactoring Legacy Code with the Strangler Fig Pattern. Now, listeners, if you haven't read the article, we'll recap it, but I also just suggest actually pausing the episode and giving it a read before resuming. The link is, of course, in the show notes. So Adriana, first off, you're on the kernel architecture patterns team. Can you explain the role of that team at Shopify? Yeah, absolutely. So my team falls within this umbrella of teams called Code Foundations. Um, and all the teams in Code Foundations are concerned with making Shopify applications easy to build, maintain, and refactor. So my team specifically, which is Kernel Architecture Patterns, um, is focused on ensuring that Shopify core is in good health, uh, and that other developers at Shopify are empowered to follow best practices around design and architecture. So kind of day to day, what that looks like is we do a lot of technical work in core to um, kind of maintain it and improve its health. But we also do work to develop tools um, that help developers track the health of the areas of code they own. And then we're also involved in a lot of education initiatives around software design and architecture. That's actually kind of how the blog post came to life. Um, we were, you know, doing some work to uh, refactor core, and we thought, you know, it would be a good idea to maybe share some of uh, what we'd learned with other people at Shopify and outside of Shopify. So we decided to write a blog post about it. Shopify as a whole just always seems to be so um, willing to share insights, especially since it's such a well-known, um, scaled-out Ruby on Rails application. So anytime I see a new post from the Shopify blog, I get excited because I know somehow it's going to be relevant to what I do. So one thing that I wanted to dive into in the article is that you start off by explaining what a God object is. So can you explain what a God object is and possibly maybe an example of one that we might see in our own code bases? Yeah, for sure. So a God object is a common anti-pattern. It basically describes an object that knows or does too much. But if you're anything like me, you might start to play the why game and get into, you know, why is it bad to have an object that knows or does too much? And um, this is kind of something I've been reflecting a lot, a lot on lately um, as I've been, you know, diving into how we can make Shopify core um, a little healthier. So I've been learning a lot about why these large objects are bad and some of the consequences that arise when you have large objects um, or objects that kind of have too many responsibilities. So the first of these is that 
Um, they're often overloaded with dependencies. So typically, if you have an object that is doing too much, it's coupled to other parts of your system. So that makes it harder to reuse. Um, they're also just like really hard to work with. If you have this giant object that does a million things and you need to make some change to it, it's going to take a lot of mental effort up front for you to understand the object so you can actually go and make the change. Um, and not only is the change hard to make, but it's going to be slow to test. And um, we've had some pretty painful experiences with slow tests at Shopify, so it's definitely a pain point. Um, and then this concept I've been learning a lot about lately is um, Death Stars. This is a term I think Sandy Metz coined. Um, basically, you have these parts of a system that are high churn and high complexity, so they're hard to understand and they also need to change a lot. Um, and I don't think that God Object is necessarily synonymous with Death Star, but I think that God Objects can turn into Death Stars a lot of the time, and that's something we've noticed at Shopify. Like if you have this class that's overloaded with responsibility, it's likely going to need to change a lot. And every time it needs to change, a developer has to load all this context into their head to understand it. And the changes they make are probably going to make it more complex. So it really becomes this vicious cycle and it can really slow down developer productivity. Um, and so on to like, how do we identify God objects in Rails apps? Um, I definitely think it's a bit tricky. Like it's not always easy to spot an object that's too large, especially because these objects don't usually start out large. They kind of slowly evolve into God objects. Um, but the biggest issue I think with God objects is that they violate the single responsibility principle in software engineering, which states that an object should only have one reason to change. So I think if you have an object that is changing for a number of different reasons, while it may not be at like God object level yet, it's probably doing too much and it's at risk for becoming a God object. Um, I think personally, uh, in my experience, a good rule of thumb is to look for areas in your system that are painful to work with. In my article, I talk about our shop model, which uh, definitely has a reputation in the company for being, you know, this massive class that's really painful to work with and that requires a lot of context and mental effort to make changes to. Um, and then something else is another thing to note about God objects is that they're uh, it's difficult to define what they're responsible for. So our domain models are meant to be abstractions of reality, useful for solving business cases. That's kind of like the typical domain-driven design definition you hear. Um, so you should be able to open up the code for a Rails model at any time and get an idea of the thing that model is representing, the abstraction. Um, and the problem is that I think as our business needs evolve, our models evolve to try and keep up, and sometimes the abstraction isn't quite right anymore. So for us, for the shop, um, it was probably at one time clear what a shop was and what it did, but today if you open up like shop.rb, it's impossible to tell what it is by looking at the code, which is a really big hint that it's overloaded with responsibilities and doesn't have a clear definition anymore and is probably a god object. So yeah, those are kind of the things that I've learned about, you know, maybe some heuristics for spotting objects that are god objects or trending in that direction. 
What a fantastic answer. I think if the phrase God object ever comes up again, I'm just going to point people to this because that was such a good explanation. I know for me personally, anytime I'm getting into a legacy Rails application, it typically is the user object for me that tends to be that God object just because you see people passing it around and really depending on it hard. And you're right, Sandy Metz has a lot of really good tips on how to break up those objects. So quoting from your article, knowing where to start refactoring can be a challenge, especially with a large class like shop. One way is to find a starting point is to use a code metric tool. It doesn't really matter which one you choose as long as it makes sense for your code base. Our team opted to use Flog. So I'm curious, why did you go with Flog and were there other libraries that you considered? Sure. So I'll just preface upfront that we really didn't invest much time in picking a tool for code analysis. There are obviously a bunch of libraries out there. Some offer static code analysis, others offer dynamic code analysis. Uh, most of them are pretty fast to run and parse the results. Um, I personally was familiar with Flog. Um, a bunch of other people on my team were as well. So we kind of just committed to using it off the bat. Um, and if you've never heard of Flog, it is essentially a code metric tool that computes a complexity score for each, each section of your code based on the number of assignments, branches, and calls. Um, and what makes it kind of a good choice is it's Ruby specific, so it can tailor its metrics a little bit better compared to using a more general tool, in my opinion. Um, but ultimately, we wanted to pick a starting point for our refactoring and we needed to extract um, a cohesive section in shop and we thought it would be beneficial to start with an area that a code mesh tool had pointed out to us as being kind of like really bad so flog just felt like a good fit for our situation um, i wouldn't spend too much time picking a tool the goal is really to find a place to start if you feel overwhelmed by the idea of like getting your hands into a big class to refactor that makes sense. So would you mind providing me a podcast-friendly definition of the Strangler Fig pattern? I would love to. Um, so yeah, the Strangler Fig pattern is essentially a strategy for migrating from a legacy system to a new system. It's a great process for refactoring your code while ensuring that nothing breaks in your application. So it was introduced by Martin Fowler on his blog and he goes uh, in depth a little bit more about kind of why he chose that name uh, for the pattern and it has this cool backstory. The TLDR of it is it's named after these strangler figs that grow in Australia. So basically you have these figs that seed in the branches of trees and they grow downwards and root in the soil. Um, so eventually they actually uh, like completely envelop the host tree and strangle it and the host tree dies and you just have like the vine behind that it has taken on uh, the shape of the tree that it strangled. Uh, so in essence, the strangler fig pattern is a method where a new system slowly grows over top of an old system until the old system is strangled and can safely be removed. Why would a team want to adopt the strangler fig pattern? The Strangler Fig pattern is great because it offers a reliable incremental process for refactoring code. Uh, so tying it back to my own personal experience, the shop model, which we've brought up a couple times now, um, it had been on my team's radar for a while. It's well known within Shopify as kind of one of, the one of the most painful models to work with just because of how large and complex and coupled it is. So given that my team is responsible for maintaining code health and core, it seemed pretty obvious that 
um, addressing the shop model and trying to break it up a bit would be a good use of our time. So uh, yeah, we decided to go ahead and refactor the shop model a bit. But as previously mentioned, it's super coupled to a bunch of other parts of Shopify core. Um, a lot of things have dependencies on shop and it's also uh, a really important part of our system. Like the shop model contains a lot of critical functionality for Shopify's commerce platform. So yeah, we had this really messy coupled piece of the system um, to work with and the risks were really high if we broke something. So it seemed like a pretty daunting task to just go in there and start pulling stuff out. Uh, so doing like a hard cut and paste refactor was kind of off the table. Um, and that was what was really appealing about the Strangler Fig pattern. It's this series of incremental steps. You can monitor changes in the system at all times. So if something accidentally breaks, it's fast to revert. Um, and it just makes the refactoring process super manageable and it lets you um, kind of continue to ship and continue to be working towards a goal and feel like you're making progress without being overwhelmed by um, this huge refactor. Well, you have led me perfectly into my next question, and that is asking you if you could please walk me through the seven-step process you use to refactor your shop model using the Strangler Fig pattern. Absolutely. Um, so I definitely recommend taking a look at the article if you haven't already. It includes some diagrams in there to kind of get more of a macro level view of what's happening. And there are code examples. So if you're finding it a little bit hard to follow uh, in the podcast, the article should hopefully clear things up. Uh, the process itself is pretty straightforward, though. Um, so just to talk a little bit about uh, our use case for the Strangler Fig pattern, we were trying to refactor the shop model, um, and our goal was really to extract cohesive sections out of shop and into more appropriate domain models. Um, as discussed earlier, we used Flog to kind of help us pick a starting point, and Flog revealed to us this section in shop.rb called store settings, which essentially stores a bunch of global attributes related to a Shopify store. So our goal was to pick a store setting and its corresponding business logic methods and extract them into a separate class. Uh, in the blog post, we talk about a store setting related to Shopify Capital, which is Shopify's finance program. So as I'm kind of walking through this seven step process, we'll pretend that that's kind of still the example I have in mind. Um, but yeah, so jumping into the actual process of the Strangler Fig pattern, the first step is to define an interface for the thing you want to extract. Uh, so essentially what we're doing here is we're creating the public API for the thing being extracted. In our case, it meant creating a new model that exposed the same interface for the capital related logic that was in shop um, and yeah, exposing it in this new interface. So we actually used a plain old Ruby object for our class here rather than an active record. Um, something we decided to do during this refactoring process was experiment with separating our business logic from our persistence logic. Um, I'll get into that a little bit more at a later step, but that's just something to note that our new interface was really just a plain Ruby class. Um, and also important to note now that we haven't actually moved any data yet. So um, our new interface is still continuing to access data from wherever our data is currently stored. Right now, that's the shop's database, obviously. So we need to pass the shop object into our initializer so that we can continue to read data from and write data to the shop's table. So that's step one. Uh, let's pretend we have our interface set up. 
um, and it's ready to go. So step two is we can start moving clients who are still going through shops interface to send capital related messages. Uh, so we can move those clients over to the new interface. That's step two. Um, would definitely recommend like taking an incremental approach here. If you have a lot of clients, um, you can kind of address them one by one and make sure that everything is going smoothly. Um, step three is then to create a new data source if we need to write data. So with our refactor for shop, we were indeed uh, reading from and writing to the shops table. And given that we were trying to decouple this capital related code from the shop model, we decided to create a separate database for the store to live in, sorry, for the store setting to live in. Um, so you can pick uh, an existing data source or you can create a new table. The goal really is just to store this data in a place that makes sense. Um, so once you have your table, uh, on to step four. So this is uh, this step is a little bit more involved. It's where we start writing our new uh, we start writing to our new data source from our new system. So we duplicate writes in this step. Um, we're going to be writing to our new data source while continuing to write to our original data source, obviously, because we still need to be reading data from our original data source. Um, and this is where I want to talk a little bit more about using a plain old Ruby object instead of an active record model to hold our business logic. So what we decided to do with this extraction was define our business logic in a Ruby class and then use an active record that is in essence private to the business logic class to handle our persistence for us. Uh, there are a couple of advantages to separating the business logic from the persistence logic. It means that our business logic class is isolated and stateless, so it's pretty easy and fast to make changes to and to test. Um, and then using a private active record also limits the surface area of our active record model, so it can make our system a little bit more maintainable because we don't have all these active record methods exposed. Um, so yeah, in this step we duplicate rights, but we obviously need to introduce the active record model um, so that our business logic class has a way to write to our new data source. So we introduce a record model. It's private to our new interface. It's obviously an active record object um, and we connect it to the new data source we created. We can add any necessary validations to the record model. And then what happens is that our business logic class um, essentially finds or initializes a record object for a given shop and delegates rights to this active record object. So we've got this neat separation between the business logic and the infrastructure logic. Um, but of course, if you're pretty sure your model is going to remain small, um, feel free to just use a single active record for your business logic and your persistence logic. Um, or if like the idea of separating the business logic and the persistence logic is a bit kind of weird, like feel free to just combine them into one. Um, the steps of the stranglerfig pattern pretty much stay the same. Um, so yeah, that's the end of step four. The next couple of steps are um, a little bit more lightweight. So step five is to backfill your new data source so it's in sync with what's in your old data source. Um, this can be accomplished by just using like a simple Rails job. Uh, in our case, we spun up a Rails job that would iterate over all of our shops and basically create or update rows in our new table to match the data. Step six is to start reading from the new data source once it's completely up to date with the original source and being written to properly. And these reads happen via the record object. 
And then step seven. So at this point, the old system is strangled. It's no longer being used. Um, the methods in shop aren't being called anymore. Um, we're not uh, using the data in shop. So it's really just as easy as removing the extracted methods from shop and dropping the data from the shops table. Okay, so that's it. That's the seven steps. It's a bit long-winded in podcast form, but uh, yeah, that was the process we followed. No, I think listeners are going to very much appreciate that. And yes, definitely check out the blog post, but I did have a follow-up question for you. So are all seven steps meant to be done like in theory in one branch and then you deploy to production or there are actually several production deployments in between there as you're testing things out? So we did them as separate steps. Um, the great thing about this process, as we've mentioned a couple times, that it's incremental. So you can be making progress and continuously shipping things and then monitoring your changes in production and making sure that you know your system is still intact. Um, and if at any point anything goes wrong, it's really fast to revert. So all of our seven steps we shipped as like separate changes to production um, and then we would you know make sure nothing broke um, and then kind of move on to the next step um, so yeah you could of course like push everything into a single branch and then uh, roll it out but the really nice thing about this pattern is that uh, you can do it separately and it's kind of a nice logical flow no, oh, you were absolutely right. That is a huge advantage to that process. So on a fun note, who did all the illustrations in the blog post? Because they are truly fantastic. Uh, I actually did them myself. So thank you. Um, it was pretty therapeutic to get to spend some time doodling like in between making edits to the written part of the blog post. So I had some fun with it for sure. That's amazing. Definitely check those out, listeners. Adriana, how can listeners follow you? So I don't really have uh, much of an online presence yet, but I'm definitely hoping to keep making contributions to Shopify's engineering blog to share some of the work my team is doing to make uh, core a little bit more manageable. So keep an eye out. I'm hoping to have some more blog posts about um, the work we're doing on there. Awesome. Adriana, thank you so much for taking the time to come uh, talk with me today. As you noted before the show, this is your first podcast and you absolutely crushed it. So thank you so much for um, relaying all those ideas. And as I noted before, Shopify just does so many amazing things in Rails and we really appreciate you sharing all of your knowledge. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on.